No, here we are. Cool. Uh, welcome to another episode of The Artistic Director. Uh, I'm sitting here with Dwayne Blackaller. Dwayne, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Jake. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'm glad to have you on. For the listener who doesn't know who you are or anything about you, can you give a history of uh, yourself in the performance world sure. that led you to being the Artistic Director of Whistling in the Dark Theater, and now you are at the Boise Contemporary Theater? Yeah, yeah. So um, I started in high school, um, you know, we got banned for creating a play that had to do with cannibalism. And so we went out and found some money and um, put together a, a performance venue and performed there. And during the course of that, I ran into a woman named Terry Dillian, who at that time worked with Idaho Theater for Youth. And so I started uh, I started working with Idaho Theater for Youth as a student and then as a teacher and, um, and then through Idaho Theater for Youth to the Shakespeare Festival, the Idaho Shakespeare Festival. And uh, I worked with them as a teacher and as an actor for a long time. And then went to, uh, uh, you know, worked some odd jobs like in Las Vegas doing sword fighting and still walking and yeah. that sort of thing. And then uh, grad school in Columbus, Ohio. Cool. Uh, during that time, I'd worked a little bit with Boise Contemporary Theater and then met some people in grad school, um, Cal Poole and Scott Wilson, some uh, friends of mine who we created the theater company Whistling in the Dark out there in Columbus. And then from there, I came back to Boise and and now I'm working with, as the education director and associate artist at BCT. Nice, perfect. Uh, what, what brought you back to Boise from Columbus? Well, it was a lot of things. You know, it's um, I've got family here, and I had a 12-year-old son who, yeah. well, not at that point, 12, I guess. And that at that point, he was quite a bit younger. He's 12 now. He's 12 okay. now, yeah. But it's a good place to raise a family. And artistically, it's a really strange anomaly. BCT was doing the kind of work that I thought was risky in any environment, but especially in a town like Boise. It was the kind of stuff that I couldn't believe that we had a subscriber base for. So I came back here and it allowed me the freedom to be able to create openly and with some, you know, a decent budget. Sweet. Awesome. Uh, so I'm going to start out. I always ask every guest the same question. Mm-hmm. And it's a big, ambiguous question. Right. So feel free to answer it in any way, shape or form that you please. Sure. Uh, the question is simply, what is your artistic direction? Mm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wow. That's a good one. Well, I guess, <clears throat> I guess my favorite, uh, the way I look at it, what gets me going is um, the creation of new stuff. So, to back up a little bit, of course I was exposed to the classics and Shakespeare a lot mm-hmm. and loved Shakespeare and still do, of course. But uh, I bristled at the notion when I began thinking how sad it would be if this art form perpetually looked backward. If we looked back at Shakespeare and thought, ah, that's how you do theater and how sad it would be every year to get further and further from that. And, um, and I don't believe it. I'm much more of an optimist than that. And so I am really invested in not only the creation of new work, but new ways of creating new work. And so I, my first experience of that really professionally was with um, BCT on a project called um, The Physics of Regret, in which it was a collaboratively devised project cool. uh, headed up by a guy named Michael Rode, who was the artistic director of a company called Sojourn Theatre Company in Portland. He now teaches at Northwestern, I think. Amazing guy. And he came in and headed up this project where we collaboratively devised this play, and it was astonishing to me. The energy and really the fact that we were more than the sum of our parts together. So I guess my artistic direction is that 
is the observation that theater is a collaborative art form and that it's a collaboration between the audience and the performers. It's a collaboration bef- between the writers and the performers. It's, cl- it's collaborative all the way through. And the more we can mind that and you either believe that you're better together <laughs> or not. Yeah. And I think that, and I really, really believe that hierarchy has its place, but exploring lateral non-hierarchical creation is, um, I think what, uh, my next steps are as an artist. So that's what I look for. Nice. Yeah. I think devising is really, really, I've been in a few devised pieces and you get, um, one of the devised pieces that I was in, we actually ended up putting the audience in the rafters of the theater. And so they were looking down at us. I like this idea of looking forward, uh, instead of backwards. So I'm going to like, I'm just wondering how, as a theater, if, if you're an independent theater and you mm-hmm. want to try challenging uh, the form or like presenting a new thing, how do you look forward and how do you how do you move ahead rather than just exclusively pulling on what's been done? Yeah, well, a lot of it has to do with form and content and how you marry those two. My managing director, Cal Poole, for Whistling in the Dark, that guy was. He was great because it creates good friction, right? Yeah. He was much more, um, he would find a great script and be like, this is what we should do, and and we would tackle it. But what was great was that he was a lateral thinker in the sense that he had some great, great ideas about the form of what we were doing. So the venue, for example, when we were doing Whistling in the Dark was we would find empty strip malls and find a space and say, the space isn't being used. And he had the kind of audacity to go up and say, hey, we want to use this space. We don't want to pay anything for it. We'll pay the electricity, but we're going to get a bunch of people coming through here and people are going to see a lot of foot traffic and we're going to help you rent your spaces and maybe this space. And then when it sells, we'll go find another spot. And we did that several times. And it was a fascinating way of working. It meant we were working on small scale, small footprint kind of work. And he was really keen on the notion of these sort of green theater initiatives where we'd recycle all of our materials, where we did an entire play where every single object in there was a recycled piece of material, either from another another theater sort of dumpster diving after their shows were done (laughs) and realizing how much waste was happening. Or, um, so he, you know, I think that was, that's the, for me, the sort of collaborative notion extends beyond the artistic process and into this the new ways of thinking about what is theater, how, why should we care? Here's one thing, Jake, I'm really glad you're doing this. Um, <laughs> I think we as theater artists are sometimes blinded by the fact that it's obvious to us why theater is good. It's obvious. It, it just seems so obvious that, oh, this is a transformative experience. It helps yeah. you find, you make contact with your humanity. You share making contact with humanity with someone else. And all of a sudden we feel like the cycle is complete and, it's abundantly clear why we should be doing theater. And that's not true for most people. (laughs) I think (laughs) what you realize is that, you know, something we've got to do better, I think, um, as theater artists, is to realize that, yes, for the small number of people who we can wrangle into our space, um, for the number of people who can get in here and have a transformative experience, it's sure it might be clear. But for most people, I think there's a huge question of, like, why should I do this? Yeah. And how is this different than watching Netflix? Yeah. And I don't think we've answered that question well. Yeah, no. And until we do, and until we are confident in being able to say, you know, and I, I, sadly, I feel like 
most of us trust that if we can get them into the room, that they'll be able to go, oh, that's true. That's right. And I think that is true. But getting them into the room means, you know, they have to trust you and they've got to, I don't know. So I think exploring form in that way and finding new ways to meet people is going to be part of, is going to be part of our challenge and growth and reaching out. I don't know. Yeah, that's how do you? I'm going to flip that. How do you get those people? That's an eternal question of theater. Right. Is how do you get the audience members who would never envision themselves going to see a theater performance into a theater, or maybe not necessarily even into a theater, just seeing some sort of performance? Right. Well, you know, so I'm going to. This is actually not what BCT does, but it's something that we did with Whistling in the Dark. Was we embraced both genre and kitsch. <laughs> and it was a funny way to, I think two of the most successful things we did was um, we picked material like the woman in black, you know, or something, yeah. you know, that's like easily accessible. It's a genre piece. It's Halloween. -y. Yeah. We do that sort of thing. And because it's a Halloween thing to do and we do it on Halloween, we've sort of leaned into the, into that sort of genre ness of it, I guess. And um, had a ghost tour beforehand, you know, leaned into all that sort of thing. And then people came in and had an experience where they were like, oh my God, I was actually transported and really, really scared in a way that they hadn't been in movies. Yeah. And all of a sudden we have these fans based on this, and they want to see what we're doing next because um, we weren't afraid to meet them in a language they did understand, which yeah. is they understand what a scary movie looks like. And yeah. so, sure, a scary thing with a ghost tour, let's go see it. And then all of a sudden now they're going wait a second, what you did with two actors in a room really, really got me. And mm -hmm. so now I want to see what's, they want to see what's next. So I think leaning into genre was something that I thought was exciting. It's something that I'm still interested in, yeah. actually. And then the, the other thing is, you know, the sort of kitsch notion, Cal Poole, my managing director with, <laughs> with Whistling, uh, had this idea and I, I loved it. It was um, a reading series where we would take movie scripts found on the internet. So Top Gun, okay, yeah. the movie script, and we would do staged readings of movie scripts and have people show up on an evening and play music and read the script, including the l sometimes absolutely ludicrous scene descriptions about what's <laughs> happening. You know, like Maverick stands on the deck of the heaving aircraft yeah. carrier as the storm rages he punches the night you know like that yeah, sort of like that's... just ridiculous right but what was funny is that like where people might be nervous to go to a play or like oh god i'm going to the theater and do i dress up for that and what does that look like and you know like but for people to go have a beer and listen to you know a reading of top gun yeah it's somehow this introduction that says somehow the performance of the thing can be more than the thing itself or that it gives us access to the thing in a different way. And so there was, I found that it was a really sort of charming and sneaky way of getting people into what the power of actual live performance does. And then they might be ready for the next thing because we have the, a reading of Top Gun and then the next weekend, a reading of Macbeth. And it's the same people would show up the next week who might not have shown up to Macbeth yeah. before, you know? Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about like you're changing the mindset of the audience. Cause that's, that's right. another thing that you have to wrestle with is that a lot of audience members or a lot of potential audience members or just people in the community have a certain perception of what theater is. Right. Uh, and that usually is 
maybe not an incorrect, but an incomplete perception of right. what it is. They like, they, okay, these people in a room. <laughs> you know, it's weird, right? Because like, I, I still think even in the professional world, it's like, if you stack a play with local heroes, musicians or performers or whatever, the attendance for that play goes up. And it's because it's really that weird old thing. Like your friends and family are the people who come see it. You go see a play because you know, somebody's in it. That's really common. Yeah. It's really, really unlikely for a person to be walking down the street and no, have no personal connection to the people in it and be like, you know what? I'm going to go see a play tonight. Like that's, that doesn't really happen in most of the world. So, so the question is, we can do a better job of making it more public and inviting and, and sort of writ large say, this is why theater is important. But I don't, I'm not convinced that the way forward is not actually more personal. Finding like a more personal connection to like, instead of going like, oh, it's a shame that people go to see their friends in plays. Well, let's just make sure that the community is friends with the people, that the community is friends with those people and that they feel like theater is personal. It's not like watching Netflix. It's reflexive. You have a relationship with those people. Yeah. You don't have a relationship with the people on Orange is the New Black, except an <laughs> imagined one. And so if we can establish real relationship between our performers and devisers, devisers and creators and and the community, then I, I feel like that's going to be what really brings us into a better relationship at large. Yeah, that's... I think one of the most, one of the hardest to control, but one of the most beneficial ways to advertise is a word of mouth. Oh yeah. And that's, there's this, there's this weird thing where once you start reaching out to the community, that just starts to become more of a talking point. And then that alongside with, if you are always striving to achieve excellence in every performance that you have, like it just, it, it, it clicks an audience member's brain. So a month down the line, someone mentions Boise Contemporary Theater. Right. And they, and they say, oh, yeah, I saw this show there that was exactly. phenomenal. Rather than if you do a mediocre or, an, or a bad show. Yeah. Uh, if you do a mediocre show, they'll forget about it. They'll forget about it by the end of the week, right. uh, I think, typically. Maybe, but, yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you do a bad show, it's like it sticks in this weird way. Yeah. I, I guess uh, So I'm, the question I'm going to form from that is how do you push – every member of your company to be striving to achieve excellence constantly? Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating question. It starts at the front end, I think, is about, this is something that I always loved about Matt Clark, the artistic director of BCT. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I think my intuition said too, was that I would much rather hire the person who is totally geeked up and in love with what they're about to do than the person who is necessarily more qualified, mm-hmm. Right. The person who is in love with the project is going to work harder and dig deeper than any amount of training could ever bring you, you know? And so your resume is far less interesting than the amount of passion you bring to the project. So that's the first part, right? Is if you bring a bunch of people who love and absolutely love what they're doing, now something's going really well. If you have a bunch of people who are technically proficient, but don't necessarily, you know, they could give or take the project you're working on. Yeah. I think you set yourself up for an uphill battle. So passion first. And then I guess the, hmm, the next thing is that, you know, Matt would always say, and he used to say, it's interesting to talk about. He used to, at the beginning of every performance first rehearsal say, let's make this the best project any of us have ever worked on. And 
that call to action, I think, was really successful for a lot of people and really like, whoa, all right, really? Like, we're going to be working on this production of um, gruesome playground injuries, and this is going to be the best thing I've ever done. Mm -hmm. And to have the artistic director say, this is your challenge, this is what we wanted to go for, can be very aspirational. It's also, I think, for some people, and I don't know that Matt does this anymore, um, though I think it's still implied in his work. I don't know that he says it anymore, partly because I think for some people that was really paralyzing. Mm. Like, yeah, to go forward to having this, this has to be the best production I've ever done. Yeah. It's like, God, I'm, you know, that's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know that that, can that be true, honestly? Yeah. And I think it was a stumbling block for some people. So, um, so w- Big passion and high expectations. And so how, whether you phrase it or state it as the best thing you've ever done, the fact that we as a group of people expect excellence and that we know we're not good, you know, that's the, the reason I liked working with this organization was that yeah. they weren't going to let me, you know, bring a crappy job. Yeah. It, it, it was not going to happen. You're held accountable. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, um, so if you have high passion and you have strong accountability and high expectations from the organization itself, and of course you build, a, you know, the audience begins to build those high expectations too. Yeah. And you can feel it if, if your production doesn't meet your audience's standards, mm-hmm. you start to feel it. Oh, and, right. Almost um, instantly, actually. It's, yeah. it's, it's a weird sensation to be like, right. I can feel the energy from the audience and they're not into this right now. Right. That's such, that's so strange. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I'm fascinated about artistic direction or leading a team, because when you bring a group of people together in a collaborative form, I think everyone has their own uh, intentions and their own quote unquote artistic direction, so to speak. And I think the challenge of artistic direction is honoring all of those while simultaneously getting the group together as a collective and giving them a single direction to go. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, no, I think that's what you just said is really, it's really important, you know, because for all of my talk about non-hierarchical creation and how beautiful that is, I mean, the fact is I was an artistic director and I now work for an artistic director, right? And with, and we collaborate beautifully, but hierarchy exists in order to clarify. Yeah. Right. And so, in the end, you want somebody to be the gasket through which everybody else flows mm-hmm. just to, you know, so that it feels cohesive. And and I still do believe that there is a time, you know, in the collaborative process where you defer to somebody's vision. And that person, ha- you have to trust them mm-hmm. that they do, as you say, take into account everybody's opinion and artistic process. But in from time to time, those things don't jive. You know, you'll have you know, they, there are disparate ideas. And so then to be able to have somebody sort of collate and curate those ideas yeah. um, so that it feels artistically um, cohesive, it's really important. And so trusting that person to really listen is, yeah. um, is really important. And I think as soon as you don't have that trust in the person at the, who's got that, you know, position, that title, then I think you're really in trouble. Yeah. Uh, it's like the single screw in, in the scaffolding comes out. Right, yeah. Eventually, it'll it'll all crumble. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna... That was just an idea. <laughs> no, it's great. I love it. I love it. I mean, like, it's... But it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge about how you get people who think differently. But there's a generosity of spirit when you... Especially, again, it's about expectations. Mm-hmm. If you expect... If you go into a room... That's one of the first things I loved when I was working with um, or watching the City Company work um, in New York. 
sitting in a rehearsal and watching the lighting designer make an acting suggestion. Which, you know, in some places that would just be like sacrilege. Yeah. Like, yeah. What? Why? In a lot of places. But yeah. watching the fact that everybody was in the room working on the same project and that everybody's voice was heard felt amazing. Now, again, in the end, Anne Bogart's the one who gets to say yes or no. But everybody, it felt so collaborative. And it felt like people could really go to war for what they wanted to have happen. But that they loved and trusted each other enough to be able to let the voices be heard. Yeah. Uh, how was it like working with Ann Bogart? I'm just curious. Oh, yeah. I, I don't want to claim to have worked with Ann okay, Bogart. Okay, right? worked like, under, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. And, like, you know, I just got to do the, you know, month-long intensive and stuff like okay. that. And, yeah, 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 yeah. But um, but being around her and watching her work is great. Yeah. And she said some amazing things, you know, some strong... I think they apply not just to directors in the rehearsal room, but also sort of in the big picture, which is, you know, the sort of story that I remember most... You know, she was eating oatmeal at the time, I think, and... <laughs> And she's be watching sort of what seems, you know, intently, but sitting there eating oatmeal, yeah. watching this yeah. <laughs> rehearsal. And then she would say something and it would be like, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. But she talked a lot about, at one time I remember her saying something about the effect of not knowing what to do as a director. You see the thing and it's not working. And the people on stage are sort of at a loss and she's at a loss. But you can't seem like you're at a loss. Yeah. And so you sit there and you're looking at the thing and she would say, okay, move the chair three inches to the right. And someone would get up there and they'd move the chair three inches to the right. And all of a sudden, they're on track again. And it was about when in doubt, make get specific and make a concrete, specific decision. And that leads to the next concrete, specific decision. And all of a sudden, you know, you're not in the world of sort of ambiguity anymore. You force yourself to get specific and meticulous that that somehow cracks everything open again. Yeah. And it also, of course, the result is that People, people don't know why she's moving the chair, right? It's not like they're like, all they know is that Ann Bogart said, move the chair three inches to the right or whatever. And it's like, oh, that fixes it. You're right. Yeah. That does fix it. And now everyone's emboldened to realize, one, we're in good hands. Yeah. And two, you know, like, oh, our work requires specificity and it requires that kind of attention. And all of a sudden everyone starts, you know, gradually getting back on the rails. And I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing yeah that's it's all about decisiveness at the end of the day if you're the artistic director or the director right. you gotta make the decision right i've seen i've known quite a few artistic directors in pretty much almost every facet of theater and i think that's one of the hardest things to overcome when you're a new artistic director yeah. is it goes back to uh, honoring everyone's sensibilities but at a certain point you have to make a decision because you're yeah. the one you're you're the gasket in which everyone flows through well and that you know and that i think that's that leads to, you know, can lead to problems down the road, you know, as an organization ages and those sorts of things. You know, an organization has the flavor of the artistic director. And I think there are people who get nervous about that. Yeah. Like, wow, that feels like that person. And especially as you get to know the person, you're like, oh, so everything that happens here kind of tastes like you made it or curated yeah. it, right? And is that okay? Because should it be broader than that or not? And it's inevitable, right? Like mm -hmm. an artistic director's taste really does. And I, I love that word taste because yeah. it is so personal. Yeah. And it's like what people like to put in their mouths, literally. Yeah. It's very similar, right? Like mm -hmm. I like savory things with, you know, and, and I like a, a certain amount of spice that I like to tolerate, maybe more than somebody else. I think over time you can get to know an artistic director and go like, oh, that's, I can feel how a lot of this stuff is their taste. Yeah. And there's a question about, 
how much should that taste be present mm. or be absent in your creative work. And I think the, something nice about Whistling in the Dark or something like that is that on those lower levels of, you know, when, we're, when it's a small theater and it sort of like feels like a grassroots early push, there's a lot of leeway. Because you're like, you can have whatever taste you want. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> be weird. Have your, have your own taste. And we'll come see it. And, you know, good job. But get 20 years in, like with BCT, and I think there's a question of like, well, should it still be your taste? Or should we get more, like, should we pull your taste out of it and let it be other people's taste? You yeah. know, is your taste constricting to the organization? I think that's a huge question. And I tend to believe that without, I, I think theater is personal. And I think that it's has everything to do with aesthetic. And so I sort of lean a little bit more on the side that like theater that becomes where you pull that out, that point of view from the artistic director, if that becomes less and less present, then I think your theater gets less and less specific and more and more general. And though it might be popular, I think you get it gets diluted to a place where it can be a little bit dangerous. And pretty soon mm -hmm. you're doing work that people are coming to see plays but not, they're not, you know, um, necessarily having a profound or personal experience as a result. Yeah, it's about understanding. I think there's a fine balance between understanding the community's general taste yeah. and then understanding your own personal taste. And right. then that's how do you, like, if, if you're an artistic director and you really like spicy stuff, right. but the community likes sweet stuff, yes. how do you find that middle ground and, like, what does spicy sweet taste like? Right. That's probably where new work exists in this right. in this strange metaphor. Exactly. Well, exactly that whole thing, and that's uh, I think that's where the real challenge is, um, and it can go one way or the other, and to the detriment of the you know of the whole experience. If you have somebody who is completely like, look, I like this stuff, and the community is not considered, then I think you're in trouble. Yeah. But the friction, the or I think the better word is collaboration between, well. Let's take a step back for a second. <laughs> I don't know that you can actually know what a community, what the community's taste is. I think we have a lot of really bad apocryphal information about what a community wants and is ready for. Yeah. I think that's our first problem is I don't think anybody really knows well and that we've got to get better at that. I don't, that's a whole separate topic. I think audiences, our audiences are chronically underestimated and absolutely done a disservice. I think, especially in places like Boise, it's very common for people to go like, well, they're Boise audiences. Yeah. You know, like, you know, they're Boise and so they're more conservative. Is that true? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, that's what people say. Yeah. And, but, but BCT has been sort of flying in the face of that for a while. Right? It's like, yeah. if that's true, then, then BCT shouldn't be around. Why do we have, you know, subscribers still mm -hmm. strong a strong base of subscribers now i think critics might say that's also why we are the second biggest theater company in boise is because we are catering to um not the public in general mm -hmm. but more of a specific audience yeah so I, I don't know i think um figuring out what an audience well let's take a step back one more time <laughs> You cannot be an artist that you're not, right? Like, so if you, whatever your taste is, is the kind of artist you're going to be. And you can defang yourself and make yourself more palatable, what you think is more pal palatable, but that's a guess, right? Yeah. You're guessing what the audience, what you think they want, and then you're presenting what you think people want. 
And who was it? Was it Martha Graham, I think, who said this? It was like, you're never performing for, if you're performing for the audience at large, it's a mistake. And I'm totally paraphrasing. Yeah. And, you know, because, and if you're performing for yourself, then that's, you know, sort of masturbatory. It's really like, yeah, who cares? It's ego sense. Like, yeah, exactly. But if you're performing for one person, and you don't know who that person is, mm. but they are there and they are going to get this and love it. Then somehow you've made that bridge between all of a sudden you've allowed the possibility. Because if you go, if you go for like, you're going to create it for everyone, then it's diluted down to the point where no one really has a real personal experience that you get, they get a general idea of what you're trying to do. But if you target one person for whom this thing is made and you're not sure who they are, but they're going to meet you here. Yeah. All of a sudden, everyone in that general audience has the opportunity to meet you there. Some won't, but now they can personally engage with you. And I think that's what is exciting to me yeah. is, is that kind of collaboration is giving the audience the credit that like there are smart people out here and you can only be the artist you are, but some of them are going to meet you there and go, that's what I need. We're going to collaborate together on creating something between us. I think that's what's exciting. I think there's a cognitive shift that you have to make in in the performance world, which is you have to stop looking at the audience as this writhing mass of ambiguous like right. flesh, right? Or <laughs> and start seeing it as individual people, right? Or an advertising demographic, yeah. Or exactly. like you know, like I mean, one of the it's true that like audience members tend to be and still are, especially in our theater company, you know, like women over fifty, right? But the problem is, is that when you're like, that's who we make plays for, I'm like, I don't know that that's the best way. Like, what happens is we should make the plays that are art artistically inspiring for us and for our community. Yeah. And we take that into consideration. But as soon as you start thinking of your audience in terms of these sweeping demographics, you dehumanize them and you dehumanize your work. Yep. And I think it's, I think then you're really in that dangerous ground of like, why do the art anymore? Right. Yeah. Except to sell tickets, and that feels, that feels, uh, <laughs> yeah, kind of black. Yeah, right. it's uh, it, it, it's removing the taste. It's re it's removing. It's taking your personal taste out. Of it. Right. Like trying to appease your audience is such a, um, I don't know. You have to acknowledge them, but yeah. You, well, and you should listen, and that's something that yeah. we must get better at as an artistic community is listening to finding ways to listen to our audience. It makes sense, you know. Like we did Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which is by no means. Um, groundbreaking yeah. and I mean, it's been done you know a zillion times before but it's it was fresh for Boise and our audiences loved it yeah and it was the first musical BCT had ever done and listening to that and going like okay they're ready for that kind of musical they want that kind of experience and they want that kind of performance and that rock and roll feel like listening to you know and I don't pretend to understand exactly what that is but anecdotally listening to the audience, it was a huge thing and, and made them thirsty for more. Yeah. And, you know, that's, oh, I see we, we, we find that throughout. So finding new ways to listen to the audience and then allow our taste to sort of meet that, that's exciting. Do you have anything that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about in terms of, you can take a moment and think sure. about it in terms of just artistic direction or performance or like just a thing that you want to say about the about acting? <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that I have any overarching thoughts That's other fine. than, you know, like, um, I still believe in putting yourself in a room with people who are better than you in almost every way. Yeah. And when you surround yourself with people who are smart and passionate and driven, it's, 
it's funny because we get a rap being theater artists and being sort of like flighty and not a type personalities or sort of yeah. disorganized or whatever it happened, you know, all those things that go with arts organizations and that it's, you know, squishy. Yeah. But I love the notion that these are hard workers who are specific and show up and work with a budget and deliver on time. It's, I mean, it's a pretty fantastic business model. Yeah. With the exception that it doesn't always make money. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that's yeah. like, I think that's, you know, finding where capitalism meets this thing is a topic for another discussion. Yeah. But um, anyway, yeah, I'm, uh, I guess I'm just immensely grateful to live in a world where I got to, you know, and I get to continually meet people who are, who are passionate about what they're doing and do have a sense of artic- artistic direction there. Mm-hmm. I love that those two words are, you know, you've said it in these ways that I think are really revealing. Yeah. That um, that it's about direction, like cardinal directions, like where are you going and how are you going to get there? That's really cool. Yeah, it makes the term, it, it makes being an artistic director an active activity yeah. rather than just a passive title that you endow right. yourself with, which yeah. is a, a thing that happens a lot. And then there's something else that I really like the notion. There was one time I was doing a performance and I was messaging this friend and I said, you know, I feel like I'm the worst one of all these people. I feel like I'm, I'm like of the, the several people I was with, I'm the least experienced and the least like ready to get on stage. And he messaged me back. He said, then you're in the best position of everyone. It's like, exactly. That's really great. That's That's really great. Cause that's like, that, that is what being inspired is. That's what is, is you. Okay. Now it's time to, instead of moping, it's time to push yourself to like, right. Like learn from these people and move forward. Man, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and then, okay, uh, one more thing, because it's sure. still fresh in my mind. We were just at the Seven Devils Playwriting Conference. Yeah. Uh, I read for one of your plays, which was fantastic, by the way. If you are a, uh, I'm curious, if you are a playwright in the modern world, what do you think modern audiences are looking for in plays that that could resonate with them, I guess? Yeah. Is a, uh, is... Well, this is a slightly bigger conversation, but I'll try and boil it down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. I think... Uh, <laughs> I think I think this is what this is what I feel. So I'll just give you that. This is what my taste is. I think we have to make them understand why it's important for them to show up that night in the room and not see a filmed version of it. And it's because when people are in a room watching something happen, you've actually made them complicit in the work that you're doing. They feel like they're part of it, for good or ill. And I think it can burn you because if it's something that they disagree with or, or hurts them or challenges their notions of propriety or whatever, then they feel, then they feel extra angry. If they had watched it on Netflix, they'd be just like, ugh, gross. I don't like it. Yeah. But if they're in the room with you, they feel it gets on them. Yeah, there's no pause button. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and they have to get up and leave. And, yeah. and it's personal. It's theater at its best is personal. <laughs> and so I think anything we can do to differentiate cinematic now, believe me, I'm a huge fan of dragging cinematic tropes and sensibility onto the stage because it's a language that we understand culturally. But then you have to take a step past that, past the cinematic and into the personal, into the physical, reactive, sweaty, smelly truth of the thing so that the audience can hear your breath, watch your real struggle, and f- face the actual possibility of failure. I think that's what theater has going for it more than any other art form is that it feels fraught with failure. 
And I think it's good for us. Yeah. I think the audience comes in and they feel it like that this thing could fall down around us. And it's dangerous. Yeah, right? exactly. That person could fall. It, good theater makes me feel like, God, I don't know if they're going to be able to pull this off. It's like sports that way, yeah. right? Like they're really pushing themselves to a limit where it feels like failure is an option. And it's, you know, sometimes when I go to, you know, if you go to the symphony or something like that, I think it's like more like a movie. It's a foregone conclusion that they're going to deliver and they're going to deliver what I expected and well. Yeah. And I love theater where I don't know if they're going to be able to pull it off. Mm -hmm. And it feels like they're pushing on it in a way like, is that script going to work? Is that actor capable of doing that? What they're about to endeavor, uh, you know, like that sense of risk is what really excites me. And, uh, so yeah, I had a professor tell the story uh, and this is like several times removed, but, uh, they were doing, I forget what the term is where there's two actors who, uh, separately rehearse a script and then they came together for a festival never before awesome. met each other. Yeah. And just the first time they saw each other, they were stepping on stage. Wow. Uh, and there's one part of the play. So, so there's a guy and a girl, uh, girls in a dress and there's one part of the play where she's unconscious and soaked and he has to take off her dress. Um, and this guy was massive and he couldn't get the buttons undone. Wow. Because his fingers were too big. Wow. And so he describes this riveting, like 10 minutes of theater right. where he is trying to get these buttons off. And like, that's the danger. And he, he eventually just says whatever and rips the dress and like, like wow. rips all the buttons off. And like, that is... That, those are the moments like it's still in the script you're still in the world you're still right. living correctly right but that's so amazing that's so like you could have never you could have never achieved that in a movie you could never no, have that in a movie yeah. yeah and that feeling that breathlessness that can happen in an audience yeah. the investment that happens and that's both it's blessing and it's curse is yeah. that the audience is invested in you personally mm -hmm. and so when you screw up they take it personally yeah and we've had plays where content or the performance or something about it hits somebody in a way where they're like, you know what? I'm out of here. You crossed a line with me. And it's funny because if that was on HBO, they wouldn't write a letter to HBO, mm -hmm. but they'll write a letter to us because it's personal. Yeah. Right. And because I was in the room and you made me feel like I was part of it and it, and I didn't want to cry tonight. And you got in me in yeah. a way that like maybe is really feels damaging or hurtful. And it, more than anything, what they really, I think, are saying is it's personal. Yeah. At our best, it feels personal and we feel enriched and enlightened and forward-moving. But sometimes it also means that there's risk there because it'll feel personal and it'll feel like, whoa, 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 you got in in a way that I didn't want to look at or I didn't want to experience. And so I love that risk. And I feel like <laughs> if we're not doing that, then we're actually not practicing the art form. We may be practicing the craft of it. But I don't think we're practicing the art unless it's really deeply personal. Dwayne, if people are trying to find you or BCT mm -hmm. online, do you have any plugs? Uh, you can go to bctheater.org. That's the contemporary spelling of theater with an E-R at the end. Mm -hmm. bctheater.org. Yeah, you can always uh, check out what we're doing here or stop by or give us a call in, in Boise, mm -hmm. 854 Fulton Street, Boise. And we'd love to see you and, um, and hear what you're doing. That's one of the things that I like best is hearing what other other theater companies and what other people are doing around the, the world and, and yeah. the country. It's really exciting for us. So track us down and come see us. Oh, uh, and then one last thing. I love ending with this. Can you just give one recommendation of anything at all? So like a book, a movie, a quote, just any, anything. Sure. Yeah. 
the movie, of course, and this is probably everybody's recommending it, yeah. but my uh, the movie that I would recommend right now, I think Get Out is. Oh, yeah. It's so good. It's great. And for a lot of the reasons I think we were talking about before, it's a genre piece that uses genre as a window into something that's really critical yeah. and so much fun and so uh, intensely evocative and uh, just re- really it's like, great. Yeah. yeah, It's yeah. a great, great movie. I love it. Awesome. Thank you so much for sitting down with me, Dwayne. It's been amazing. Thank you, Jake. Uh, uh, you can find this podcast on Facebook and SoundCloud and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have an excellent rest of your day, listener. <laughs>